Yahweh, we just praise you for the God that you are. We praise you that you are unique and unlike any other being in the universe, that you are both a loving and all-powerful God that pursues us no matter what in a covenant relationship, and that you require only our faith and no works or skill or intelligence or certain ethnicity or gender or social status. And we just praise you for being that God. I pray as we just go through your word of God revelation today that that would be first and foremost centered in our minds. Uh, We are going to go through a very complex, very weird book. And it is a very, has caused a lot of division in the church. And I pray that we could just surrender um, to it, allow the spirit to speak. And no matter what happens in the end, that we would all be able to embrace and then praise you for the fact that it is consistent all the way throughout and that every Christian can agree on, that you are the judge who is coming to judge the world, to eliminate all sin and evil one day and establish the kingdom of God on earth. And this is done through the second coming of your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that that would be the focus, that would be the attention as we go through this. Give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear the complexity, the uniqueness, and the awesomeness of this book today as we go through it tonight and after night after night after night after night as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation. The English word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypto. And apocalyptic means to um, uncover, to reveal, to disclose. It's something that was hidden or unknown, and not in a secret teaching elitism kind of a way that only the privileged get to know this when they prove themselves worthy kind of revealing, but just something that was not previously talked about, something that is confusing, something that was unknown, something that we were not ready for yet. Um, and then it's, it's an unveiling. Apocalyptic or apocalypto does not mean the end of the world. It does not mean future things yet to come. It does not mean the end of the world. That's the way we use it, right? The apocalypse, the post-apocalyptic movie, right? Where all governments have died and gone away, and it's just like survival of the fittest out there. Um, Those make for interesting movies, and I believe so much in the depravity of man, I believe that actually could happen. Um, But that's not what revelation means. That's not what apocalyptic means. That's not what apocalyptic means. It means to unveil. To reveal something. And so what God is doing in this book is he starts with a vision of Jesus Christ, letters to the seven churches, and then he pulls back the curtains of heaven and reveals a divine perspective of human history. Most of the time that we've gone through the First Testament, or if you've read through the First Testament, what you have seen is human history where God speaks his commentary into it. He shows you the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the jacked-up, dysfunctional, horrific sinfulness of humanity throughout history, and then gives his commentary on it. When we get to the Gospels, we get the curtains opening up in the Son of Man, Jesus, coming into history and interacting with history and giving his commentary on things. But this is one of the very few books other than Ezekiel and Zechariah and parts of Daniel where heaven opens up and we are seen, we go into heaven and we're given a divine perspective of looking down on the earth of how things are seen from God's perspective. And because God is so beyond us, it is highly symbolic. 
and highly metaphorical. There's so many times that John is like, um, look, Greek, Hebrew, Akkadian, Aramaic, English, whatever you're speaking, this human language does not, can't even get anywhere close to doing justice to explain what I'm seeing. John says a lot like, it looked like this, and like that, and like that, and like that, and like that. And, and we see this even with Ezekiel. When Ezekiel sees God coming down in the, the chariot, the portable chariot coming through the temple, he says, I saw one who looked like a human sitting on the throne. He looked like he was on fire. But what I saw was the appearance of the likeness of his glory. I didn't even see God. I saw his glory. I didn't even see his glory. I saw the likeness of it. I didn't even see the likeness. I saw the appearance of it. And this is what my human language can get me. John is going to stretch the human language to the brink of breaking to try to explain what he's seeing here. And so we need to see this, that not only are we dealing with metaphors and symbologies that are hard for us to interpret, but we're also dealing with symbology and metaphors that have been stretched to the brink of breaking to try to explain what's happening. This is what Apocalypto is. It's a revealing of what has come. This is God's plan to finalize the redemption of creation and humanity. This is what we're getting. It is widely accepted among scholars that John, the disciple of Jesus, is the author of this book. There are always people who dispute authorship at different times, but most scholars say that this is John who wrote the Gospel of John and First and Second and Third John, the letters to the churches. There is, very, there is no really external evidence for this. There's no one who says this is John or anything outside the Bible that proves this, although there is lots of internal evidence within the writing itself that suggests that this is John. One of the things is that there are very, John's language is unique. Okay? The Gospels sound a lot like each other except for John. John just used the unique vocabulary and metaphors and imagery um, that many of the other gospel writers didn't use and, many, and Paul didn't use. When people compare the writings of the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John with Revelation, there are strong similarities in vocabulary, speech tendencies, um, all that kind of stuff. And for one of them is John's the only one that ever uses the Logos. Um, in the beginning was the word. That is the, the Greek word logos, which means word, but more specifically reason or thinking about something than just actual written down words. And then there are certain things like um, he talks about being pierced in a way that the other writers don't. And he links to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, in a way that none of the other gospel writers or anybody else in the Second Testament read. And so these are just a few examples of many, 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 many things that scholars, um, and if you want to go all geek down on that, I can point you to a commentary that will go through every, all the linguistic things, um, but most people are not interested in that. There's just certain things that link that. According to the writings of the several early church fathers, the church fathers are like the next generations after the apostles who were leading the church and writing and that kind of stuff. They claim, they say that John was a prisoner um, from Ephesus. John was a pastor of a church in Ephesus. He was then came under the sight of the Roman Empire. They didn't like what he was saying. Most likely, probably, if you were here for the book of Acts, because the Jews didn't like him, and they um, created such a ruckus, the Romans just dealt with John. They've imprisoned him on an island. And Patmos is an island right off the coast of the, um, it's in the Aegean Sea, right off the coast of what we know as modern-day Turkey in the Mediterranean Sea. He was probably a prisoner there for the faith, 
but eventually would go back to his church where he would then be executed. Scholars date this writing to two different time periods. They date this to the time period of the Caesar um, Domitian, which is around 81 to 96 AD, or Nero between 54 and 68 AD. Most scholars lean towards Domitian after 70 AD, but there are some people who claim this is before 78. Now, I know most of you are like, I don't really care, but, and that's okay because I don't really care either. I do think dating things is important to a certain degree, but the big argument for, the big confusing thing is we know that pretty much the entire first, second testament was written by 70 AD. On 70 AD, the Romans came in and completely destroyed the temple of the Jews and did not leave one stone standing on top of the other. Jesus predicted this in Mark 13 and some chapters in Luke and Matthew as well, that this would happen. This is a major devastating blow. And the epistle writers argue very adamantly, based on the prophetic writings, that the temple was meant to be destroyed. There's no reason for the temple to ever come back again because we are the temple. We are the body of Christ. And you can see this in Colossians chapter 2, where we're told to be the house of God. Ephesians chapter 2, where we're said to be the house of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, where we're told that we're living stones being built in the stone. Um, you can see this in lots of different places. Though even Paul used the language of being the body of Christ. And then, of course, when we get to the end of Revelation, John literally says there was no temple because Jesus is the temple. And Jesus said back in John chapter 2, verse 29, that tear down this temple in three days or rebuild it. And they said they did not know he was talking about his body. So there's very, this is an ironclad proved argument that the epistle writer saw Jesus the replacement of the temple and that he was a much superior temple. Even Hebrews goes into this. If these had been written after the destruction of the temple, you can be certain that many of them would have been talking about that. That would, would, look, Jesus is right. The prophecy is fulfilled. Look, look, this is why Jesus is the temple. They would be pointing to that. So this is when the argument that people use why Revelation was written before the destruction of the temple. But there's lots of other evidence of why it probably wasn't written before the destruction of the temple. But if you want to geek out on that, I can point you to places like that. But just know that that's what people debate and talk about. Who is John's audience? He's writing to seven literal churches in what we know as modern-day Turkey. This is known as Asia Minor. Um, it's a smaller part of Asia, the continent. It's in modern-day Turkey. The Greeks called it Anatolia. It's the northern part of uh, Mesopotamian, or Mesopotamian, Mediterranean Sea. And he's writing to the seven churches in the order that a messenger would travel the road to visit them. He's actually listing them in the order. So the idea is he would hand this to a messenger and he would go off to the seven churches from Patmos and then he would ride the trail and pass copies to them in that order. This is very rooted. He mentions the names of the churches as he goes through the letters. He talks about things in the city that have been proven without a shadow of a doubt and archaeological diggings and that kind of stuff. I have linked a series of seven videos on my website by Joel St- Joe Stoll. Joe Stoll is a phenomenal mind and pastor. He actually goes through the seven cities on an archaeological cultural level. He actually stands in the, each city as he tells you about the city and why passages in these letters would what that would mean to them. I've incorporated some of those ideas um, into these writings, but at the same time, there's nothing like being there, but second best watching a video of a guy who's actually in the city pointing to that and saying this is how it connects to the letter. 
So I recommend they're about 10 or 15 minutes per city. Um, so it's not a huge watch, but this would be a good thing to watch. Why these are single out and not others, we don't know why. There are lots of churches in Lyconia and Derby and Debris, lots of churches. See that in the book of Acts. Um, these might have been ones that he had a very special relationship with. There's nothing about that, so that's just a guess. Like, why would you write to these seven churches and not others? Most likely on a human level, you just feel more connected to them. But then why seven? Well, we're going to talk about this. Seven is the number of completion. And it symbolically represents that, and it shows up in this book more than any other book in the entire Bible. And so these seven churches would also symbolically represent the letters to the churches as a whole. And it's important to remember that even though the Bible, the Bible was not written to you or me, it was written to the early church, but it was written for us. It was written specifically to them. He did not have us in mind when he was writing this, but the message there is relevant for us today as we go through this. Obviously, I believe that, or I would not be up here wasting my time teaching them. He's writing to a very specific people group in a very specific time period facing very specific troubles and trials. And it's important to understand that. And this is, I adamantly believe that you cannot understand the Bible if you, if you don't understand the original culture. And so that's what we're going to be spending a lot of time doing. So that's kind of a little mini intro to the dating and the audience and the writer. We're going to move into purpose. So what is the purpose of the letter? There are many scholars that argue that the purpose of Revelation is to exhort the readers, to uh, his audience, to be steadfast in the faith in the midst of persecution and fortify their courage by revealing the ultimate destruction of the power of evil and establishing the kingdom of Yahweh on earth. That was a mouthful. But basically, most scholars believe that John is writing specifically to say, stay committed to the faith despite the fact that you're being persecuted, and the state itself, Rome, and the Jews who have not converted are against you for being Christians. Hang in there. It's worth it. Christ is with you. Be encouraged. However, that doesn't really seem to be the gist of what, Paul, or what John is writing. As you read through the writing of Revelation, it doesn't really seem that persecution is the dominant. Yes, there's times where it talks about the beast attacking, attacking people, and it talks about the martyrs in heaven, but there doesn't seem to be the main, main folk that focus that's going on here. If you take a early date, if, you're, if you take a later dating of Domitia, Domitian, they're under heavy, heavy, heavy persecution. But if it's not written in the early dates, then they weren't under heavy persecution as a whole. Yes, some churches here and there were being persecuted, but not as a whole. And yes, you're like, well, what about Nero? Wasn't he a psychopath? That was like, yeah, but Nero didn't become a psycho until later in his life. And he didn't really up the persecution until later in his life. This probably is most likely not actually the purpose. First, why it's not the purpose. It presupposes the external persecution is the sole reason for the writing of the letter. That's an assumption. Nowhere does John say, I'm writing to this to you to encourage you in the midst of persecution. So if you say that's the purpose, that's an assumption. So you're basing the assumption. Second, it assumes a late date, which I already talked about. And third, it assumption that the identity of Rome or Babylon is restricted to a specific kingdom. Yes, he's writing against Rome, but he also uses the word Babylon of Rome, too, all throughout the letter. So many people assume that he's using Babylon to refer to Rome, and he is. Because if Rome's going to kill you for talking bad about them, then you're going to use code words. 
and you're going to talk about Babylon. Babylon doesn't exist anymore. Okay, it hasn't been it hasn't existed since the Persians sacked them all the way in 539 BC. It hasn't existed since then. So it's obvious he's not talking about Babylon. But if it's obviously a code for Rome, but then you are you assuming that it's just Rome? It could be a code word for multiple nations or multiple empires. And then therefore you can't say the characteristics of Rome apply to the audience necessarily all the time. And so most likely this is not the reason why he's writing. And remember, these letters are supposed to transcend time and space. And if it's about persecution, that leaves out a lot of people throughout human history who are not facing persecution, i.e. ourselves, and much part of American history. This is very not likely not the group. The, the private, so let's consider his audience. Who is his audience? That will help you understand why he's writing this book. His audience is made up of three groups of Christians. If you were here for the book of Acts, we talked about these three groups a lot. The first group were Jews who had embraced Jesus as their Messiah and converted to, well, they would not see as a conversion. They would see as like Jesus the Messiah. But as the church grows and grows and grows, and the Jews largely reject Christianity or largely reject Jesus as the Messiah, then Christianity would start becoming a new thing, separate from Judaism. And so the first group of his churches is Jews who converted Christianity, who are now embracing Jesus as the Messiah. But they're not embracing the deity of Jesus. Jesus is both God and man, and it is absolutely essential that you embrace both of those. He is God and man, because if he's not God and man simultaneously, you have no hope of your salvation. He has to be God because only God is without sin. And if he's not without sin, then he can't die for your sins. He'll just be dying for his own sins. And then he has nothing left over for you. He has to be God because only God can conquer the grave. A human cannot and come back to the life. So he has to be God in order to save you. But he has to be human because only a human can die. And that the penalty for sin is death. And he has to be human because only humans have sinned. And a human has to represent us if he's going to die for us. And then he's also human because he's going to learn what it's like to be human. Only when you put those two together as Jesus' identity can you truly have salvation. You take one of those away and you're no different than any other religion that just leads to hopelessness. And so you had to embrace them both. But the Jews largely are having a hard time with this deity. God made it clear all throughout the First Testament, there is only one God that you should have before me, and you should have no other gods before me, and that I am not a man who is da-da-da, right? And then all of a sudden Jesus comes along and is like, I'm God. And they're, they're really struggling with that. And so they're, 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 they've accepted Jesus as the Messiah. They, they probably know like somewhere he is God, but they just, that's hard. That's hard for them. And meanwhile, their Jewish friends and family who haven't converted are saying, you're a horrible person. You're leaving the faith. This is blasphemy. This is a violation of the first two commands of the Mosaic Covenant. You're not a good Jew. And if you've got people in a, a church that is small and kind of hiding, saying Jesus is God with not a fully developed Second Testament yet, and then you've got your friends and family that you've spent your entire life with who love you and you love them saying something else in your ear. That's going to be hard. That's going to be hard. And so there's a struggle there for them. 
The second group of people are the Gentiles who have now converted to Christianity. For them, they have no problem embracing the deity of Jesus because they worship tons of gods all the time and they even have stories of humans who are half God and half human, that kind of stuff. But what they have a hard time doing is embracing the full deity of Christ. It's one thing for you to be the biological byproduct of Zeus and have a little bit of a demigod in you like Hercules or Perseus. It's another thing for you to be fully God in your essence and nature without a biological birth. And the, the Gentiles thought that was just foolishness. And then what really, really made it hard for them was the resurrection. No religion in the entire world values the human body in the material realm like Judaism and Christianity do. And obviously I would argue that Christianity is what Judaism was meant to be. And so there's no religion that values the human body like Christianity. And the Greeks just thought that, that was just ridiculous stupidity to talk about the resurrection of the body and come back. And so now you've got these Gentiles who have obviously embraced Jesus the Messiah because no other God has ever spoken to them. No other God has ever loved them. No other God has offered salvation to both males and females, rich and slaves. All social status is a male and female equally. There is no religion that has brought an explosion of conversion in the ancient world, and even to this day, like Christianity across the planet. And it's because this God actually cares about us, and that's foreign to us. And I know you have like religions today like Hinduism and Buddhism and stuff where you have this idea that the gods or care about you or, or the being does. But you have to realize in the early form of those religions, those gods did not care about you. They slowly evolved into caring about you after the emergence of Christianity spreading across the world. And they were just desperately trying to be liked too when people were converting against from them. Once again, you've got family members are saying, you're an idiot, you're an idiot, you're an idiot. There is no resurrection. He can't be fully God and fully human at the same time. That's not possible. They're struggling. And so you've got these Jews who are tempted to walk away from the faith. And then not just because they're being persecuted physically, but because they might be rejected by their family. The persecution is not necessarily physical attack, but the persecution is just being rejected. And we understand that. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but names will never hurt me is the biggest load of crap I've ever heard, right? <laughs> we heal from broken bones. We, we spend our entire life trying to heal from insults and name calling and lies that have been bred in our head. This is going to be the hardest thing for them. It's not the physical persecution, actually. And I'm not saying that's easy, okay? I'm just saying most of the time what gets us more is when our family or friends are walking away from us. That's the hardest. And so it's not necessarily persecution. It's losing people. The third group then is the Jews or the Gentiles that have fully bought into it. They are committed, die hard in the wool, committed. And they have embraced it. They're following it. You're going to see this in the churches where he commends them. He says, I, I, you are greatly commended for your faith. And you have not walked away in any kind of a way. Now you bring these three groups in the church where you have people who are sold out for Christ in every aspect as the God-man. You've got other people who think, you're, you're, no, 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 he cannot be God. And the other side of the group is like, no, 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 he can't be human. And you're all trying to do life together on top of all the things, other things about humans that annoy each other and make it difficult. Unity is the biggest conflict here. Unity and the temptation to walk away from Christ as the God-man. And if you really go through all the letters 
of the Second Testament, that's what keeps popping up over and over, right? Paul in Corinthians is writing unity, unity, unity. Peter's writing unity, unity, unity. Jude's like, don't let these false teachers come in and lead you astray and break down your unity. The only prayer that we have of Jesus recorded, other than the, the Lord's Prayer, but that's more of a template of how to pray, but the only intimate a personal prayer that we have of Jesus with the Father is the night before his crucifixion in chapter 17 of John. And the greatest thing that he prayed for is, Father, I pray that they would be one with us and one with each other like we are one with each other. That was his prayer. The night before he was going to die on the cross, that's what he was praying. And that was his desire for us. And of course, he was going to prove himself to be the God-man for them. And so their major struggle here is their lack of unity and the temptation to walk away from the faith. And that is the main purpose. This is what John is trying to argue for. So the first major purpose of Revelation is exhort the believers toward a moral separation from the world and remain faithful to Jesus Christ as the God-man even to death. So yes, even to the point of persecution, even to the point of death, but that's their commitment. That's what he's calling them to is not be encouraged. Life will get easier eventually. If, God, if, if the Roman Empire gives you lemons, make it lemonade. That's not the point. The point he's saying is your family's threatening to reject you. You're losing your social status at your job. You're not making as much money because the Romans don't like you. You have to maybe pay, pay higher taxes. The, these pagan religions, you, some of you Gentiles have come from the Gentile religion where you used to worship your pagan gods through sex and abortions and bestiality and pedophilia, and now you've left all that to embrace Christ, but those habits die hard when they're ingrained in you. The whole entire Roman Empire is flashing immorality in your face all the time, and that's hard for the human nature to resist. And, and, and your family is threatening to disown you and reject you. And, and family reunions are difficult and stressful and tense. And, then, and you are possibly being looked down and losing your ability, your business or your status in the community. And you're not making as much money or they won't invite you to these things because of who you are. And all that is saying, chuck it out the window and go back to your old lifestyle because it was much more comfortable then. And what he's arguing here is, but Christ, your God, man, lion, lamb, king, warrior is coming back. And they will, he will rewrite the entire system. And they're going to answer for what they have done. And you don't want to be on that side. It might be really comfortable now to chuck the faith or compromise it or go into your immorality. But it's going to be way more uncomfortable when he comes back. And you might think that there are rewards and blessings at work, financially speaking, by chucking the faith. But there are far greater rewards and blessings for sticking to it when he comes back. And that is the first and foremost purpose. And you're going to see that all throughout Revelation. Even though he mentions those who died for the faith, the martyrs for the faith, the, the beasts killed them or whatever. What he constantly points out more than anything is not their being killed but that they did not take the mark of the beast and they did not worship the beast and they did not defile themselves with the practices of the world. That's what's emphasized about them more than anything else. And to that, you and I can relate to. We may not relate to the persecution, 
but we can relate to the desire to compromise or keep our mouth shut or water our faith down because th the world's always been the same, but America's starting to change and catch up and be returned to back what it's always been. And so that's scary for us as we face this. So this is the first and foremost purpose. Okay, and so the second purpose then is, is to boldly proclaim the faith. Over and over and over again, he will call them the witnesses, the witnesses. In Acts chapter 1, 8, when they asked the disciples, is this the time that you're going to bring the kingdom of God on earth? Jesus' response is, I'm not going to tell you when or but I'll tell you what it'll look like. I will send my spirit and he will come upon you in power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the furthest ends of the earth. And then that's exactly what he said in Matthew 28 too. Go out and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you to the ends of the ages, or the ends of the earth. The second major purpose here is exhort the believers to bear faithful witness to Jesus in the midst of compromising, idolatrous church and the world. To not only not compromise your faith, and your devotion to the God-man, but to also stand up and boldly proclaim Jesus as the God-man. Because God's greatest desire is not just to save you, but to save the whole world. It is the way that you live. And of course, for John and all the epistle writers, your testimony is not just your words, but the way that you live. When you're going to share the gospel, wrap it in a sandwich. And if you're going to give a sandwich, then wrap it in the gospel. And it means that at all times when you're speaking, that you're serving through actions. And all times that you're serving through actions, you're speaking. Okay? And so the gospel is always there no matter what. According to the epistles in the Second Testament, what is then the gospel? And in a nutshell, the gospel is Jesus Christ, the long-awaited king, came into the world to redeem humanity through his death and resurrection, and is returning as creation's divine king to judge the world and establish the kingdom of Yahweh on earth. That is the gospel. The long-awaited king. It's not Jesus your savior. It's the long-awaited king, master, lord, God has finally come to the earth to redeem you from sin and death into a new life. And is coming back again to establish his literal physical throne on earth after he judges humanity for how they have dealt with him and establish the kingdom of God on earth like it once was in the Garden of Eden. And the words of J.R.R. Tolkien in the book The Hobbit it is home and back again. We are going to emphasize the fact that the whole point of Revelation is restoring getting back to the Garden of Eden. There's going to be a lot more people there now, and it might look a little bit different with infrastructure, but it's the Garden of Eden all over again. And so this is the major purpose. These are the, the two major purposes. So I'm going to say this right now. There's two things I want you to constantly keep in your mind as we go through this book as we struggle with futurist view and preterist view and this symbology and that metaphor and whether it's literal or metaphorical and all that kind of stuff, there's two ideas that I want you to keep in your head at all times. This is about the gospel. This book is about not chucking the gospel and willing to boldly proclaim the gospel. No matter whether it's already been fulfilled like the preterists believe, don't worry, these words will make sense. 
or it's going to yet happen like the futurists say, or if we're in the middle of it right now like the idealists. Whatever view you take, first and foremost, it is do not chuck the gospel and boldly proclaim it because you will never find any other being in the universe like Jesus, Yahweh, who loves you and is powerful enough and pursues you in a covenant no matter what and it gives you faith to come to him rather than works-oriented. So that's the one idea that I want you to hold on to no matter what. We might disagree, you might struggle, but do not lose grasp of that. The other hand, it needs to be holding on to another thing. No matter what we disagree, most disagreements happen in chapter 6 through 16. The seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, and the seven, seven bowl judgments. A little bit in 17 through 20, but that's where most of the disagreements come. But what I am going to argue to you, and what I think is the most important, is not those chapters. I think by far the four most important chapters in all of Revelation are chapters 4 and 5. This is the enthronement of Yahweh in chapter 4 and the enthronement of the Lamb in chapter 5. And the second two most important chapters is 21 through 22. And that is where the kingdom of God and Yahweh and the Lamb all come down to earth to dwell with us like we did, they did in the garden. And there's no more sin. There's no more death. There's no more suffering. There's no more Satan. There's no beasts. There's no little beasts. There's none of that. There's just us and an intimate relationship with God, both physical and spiritual. Heaven, spiritual, earth, physical, all married together. Body and spirit married together. These are the four most important chapters. They're going to begin with the enthronement of Yahweh and the Lamb, and the book is going to end with the throne of Yahweh and the Lamb coming down to earth to dwell with us. After we get done with the letters of the seven churches, we're going to begin with that one idea, and everything is going to get to that idea. And that is the gospel. That is the gospel. Yahweh and Jesus enthroned, coming to earth to redeem humanity. And so I would say that no matter what happens at the end of this, we can all stand up unanimously and say amen to these four chapters because that's where our hope is. Our hope is not found in the plague judgments. Our hope is found in the enthronement of Yahweh and Jesus coming to earth. Okay, and that's what we, that's what we want to focus on. And so I will spend more time on those chapters than anything else. This is the driving focus of the book. Now, we already immediately see these, this pur- these two purposes right off the bat. So when he starts writing to this, the seven letters of the seven churches, which is our, our chapters um, two through three, when he starts writing those letters, the first of all, what he sees in chapter one and two is Jesus appearing as the God-man and a highly metaphorical glory power kind of image. And then after he gives that image, he starts writing to the seven churches about do not walk away from the God-man. Now, that's a very, if you're going to argue, do not walk away from the God-man, then that's a very powerful image of Jesus that he just gave them. A very powerful image. This is the focus of the letters. As it continues throughout, he's going to argue to them. I mean, you, you guys, hopefully you did your homework and you read through the book or you're at least almost done. And it would be very beneficial for you to try to read it in one sitting, too. Always try to do that at least one time with a book. Um, it, it, would, it only takes about 45 minutes to an hour to read that book, even if you're a slow reader. As you begin to read that, that's the focus, right? 
He's the, the, the two main focuses of his letters are either rebuking people in the church for compromising their faith or commending them for not giving in to the compromise of the world. And that's the focus. So you see that right out the beginning. He, yeah, he says, blessed are you who are victorious and go to the end. But the point is not like, congratulations, your pain tolerance is really high. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, blessed are you who did not walk away. You did not compromise the faith. That's what he's focusing in the letters of the church. And then this is what we see all the way through, even through the plagues. He constantly says, and this is the wrath of God that he poured on the earth because they rejected the lamb. And this is what he did to the kingdom of the beast because they rejected the lamb. And then he took the believers and brought them into heaven because they did not worship or take the mark of the lamb. This is what he keeps saying over and over and over again to bear to the testimony. This then is how you endure persecution. You know how you leverage pain? You find a greater fear and a greater pain to get you through it. Why is a mother or father willing to sacrifice their life and put their body through like the most miserable pain to rescue their children? Because the fear of losing their children is greater than the fear of being physically hurt in whatever chaos situation they go in. How do you endure persecution? Because the fear of the world killing you is nowhere close to the fear of not being with your Savior for all eternity. And so this is how you get through persecution. The, the closer you are to Christ, the more you root. And like, I don't know if I have it yet. I mean, I've never, nobody knows whether they can go through persecution. So I'm not up here saying, I've got it. I, I know what the answer is. I know what I believe. I know what I desire. I know how to get through persecution. But I've never been tested yet. Okay? It's like getting in the car for the first time after being all those boring classes, right? Blood on the highway. And then now you have to actually finally drive. And you wonder if you have it, what it takes to drive, right? So, like, we are fortunate to live in a country where we haven't really been persecuted. Not really. Our greatest persecution is indulgence and entertainment and comfort. And that's what draws us away. I don't know what I would like to think that I do, but until that moment comes, no one of us know what we're going to do in any situation until we're tested. But I do know that the way that you get ready for persecution is you try to draw close to him and get to know him better so that when you are persecuted then the fear of losing him is far greater than anything the world can do to you. And so this is how one goes through persecution. By staying focused on Christ. He is the only one who can sustain the believer. He is the only one who can conquer the world. He is the only one who can redeem you. He is the only one that can establish you in the kingdom of God on earth when it's all said and done. He is the only one that can bring you back to Eden. Stephen Smalley says this, the seer, the seer is just a fancy word for prophet. He sees things beyond the realm that we don't normally see. The seer, John, chief's concern is to present a drama. And this does feel a lot more like a drama. Like, like it's almost like a Shakespearean, a Midsummer Night's Dream-like play. It is dreamlike. It is metaphorical. But the drama to present about God's salvation through his judgment to a community, which was itself infected with falsehood. If you read the letters of the epistles, it's... False teacher after false teacher after false teacher. And we have them today in America and all around the world. The members of John's circle were inclined to, inclined to inadequate belief, notably about the person of Jesus and therefore to wrong conduct. You will act like what you worship. 
you will act like what you worship. It was interesting. Our pastor just mentioned this. Like, this is what I pound into my students' heads at school. And so when our pastor at this church just mentioned this, I was like, yes, you will, you will become what you worship. If you worship money, that is all you can, that's what you will, that will, that's what will consume you. That will, that will drive you, success, friends, people liking you, whatever it is. But here's the other thing that you must realize. You can never become greater than what you worship. If you're bowing down to and surrendering to something, it will always be greater than you. If you're pouring out your devotion to it, it will always be greater than you. If you are worshiping something in creation, you can never become greater than that. But if you're worshiping the divine God who is transcendent and beyond all things and responsible for all things, then there is no limit to what you can become. And I don't mean that in an enlightenment ascension into Godhood kind of a sense. I mean in what Christ can make you into and be for him and how he can use you as a vice regent image of God reflecting him kind of a sense. And so if you worship things of the world, you will act like them. And that's what you need to understand. This is what he's encouraging. Do not focus on behaviorism. If you want to make it about behaviorism, go join Buddhism, Islam. They do a really good job of focusing on being a good person, too. But if you want something unique, then it's about a relationship with Christ. And if you draw close to him, you will begin to emulate him. And then you won't have to worry about conduct. I'm not saying, don't take me out of context. Don't re-edit me. Um, it will just become the outcry, the, the pride pride. It's interesting, First Peter, before Peter even gets to any commands of how you're supposed to act, he starts with your identity. The first whole chapter is what your identity in Christ is. And then he begins to give you commands in chapter 2. Because if you are, you're, you're raised by parents and your parents constantly tell you you're an idiot, you're no good, nobody will like you, you'll never amount to anything, you're going to believe that about yourself and you're going to act like that. But if you're told that you're beautiful and intelligent and smart and you're gonna, there, there's the potential, the world is your oyster, then you're going to act like that. Peter and the Gospels, they always start. No, you, can, you can look at this any letter you will notice that they will start with your identity in Christ first before they get to any commands on conduct and behavior. The temptation, Smalley goes on, to compromise with truth and use power unjustly would be increased by the fact that these adherents were surrounded by a pagan society which encouraged people to eat food which had been sacrificed to idols and dominated by an imperial Roman rule which absolutized its own power and prosperity. The prophet seer therefore warns his readers about the dangers of idolatry and any form, social, political, ecclesiastical, which is a big fancy word for church structures, or economic. And a passage of striking imagery, the destruction of Babylon in Revelation 17 through 18, for example, he demonstrates the inevitable downfall of human arrogance. By contrast and by the means of a testimony which is relevant to any Christian group in any age, John urges his congregation to worship God rather than the beast and to reject the wiles of Satan by following the exalted lamb. That's, the, that's what he's crying out to. We may not all face persecution, but we all face the temptation to be like the world. We all face the temptation to be like the world. It may be through the things that you value, the things that you spend your money on, the way that you act, the, the job, the promotions, the way, I don't know, but we all face that. 
And so this is the main purpose. 